Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Jessa Jones, the owner of iPad Rehab. Jessa's story is one of my favorites. She has a PhD in human genetics from the Johns Hopkins University. She is a mother of four, and in 2012, she started a micro-soldering business. What? (laughs) I absolutely love this profile of a stay-at-home mom who detached a toilet from her home, smashed it to recover her relatively new iPhone, and in that moment, her micro-soldering business was born. It turns out that years of work in genetic research, where she cut open and researched fruit fly eye structures, I'm not kidding, would help her strengthen expertise in micro-soldering the logic boards of iPhones and iPads. I loved hearing about Jess's emotional connection that she has in device recoveries. And we talk about everything from porn stars and newborn babies and homicide victims' phone recoveries. Jess's profile and mindset makes me question conventional wisdom. And I might think my perspective of pajamas have been changed forever. Please enjoy this profile of the incredible Jessa Jones. Hello, Jessa. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining the show. I think that your background is one of the most unique. And so I can't wait to get into your current profession, which is a micro solderer. But before that, you have a PhD in human genetics. I know that a lot of my listeners enjoy hearing background stories. Can you share initially where you grew up? I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, and it's kind of a rural area. And I went to school at Snow Hill High School on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is by the beach town of Ocean City, where everybody works as a waitress all summer long growing up. And I have mom and dad and my sister, so the four of us, which was kind of a standard American upbringing in a rural country spot. And then how did you decide to go to University of Maryland to study molecular biology? I went to University of Maryland because I had a scholarship. So I can remember trying to decide where to go to college and going on the college tours where I was making decisions based on who had a loft in the dorms (laughs) or whether or not the flowers were really pretty or just okay in this circle in the center of the college. That's the kind of stuff I was thinking about. So I went to University of Maryland because they gave us a scholarship based on strong academic performance in high school. So that's pretty much how I chose college. And what about the biology route? So I was lucky in about 10th grade to have a 
really wonderful teacher. So Mrs. Beverly Wilson was my 10th grade high school biology teacher. And she was the one that let us discover this concept of genetic engineering, which I thought was fascinating. This idea that you could do work on such a intrinsic level to like how things really are, that you could cut and snip DNA and move genes around and change something so core and central to how is a tomato red, make it redder. So I grew up really kind of liking to tinker around. One of the things that I think was a great experience growing up was participating way back then in this thing that still goes on called Odyssey of the Mind, which is a creative problem-solving competition that's still around. My kids do it. I have to coach it now. But growing up back in 1984, it was we had an OM team where you were encouraged as kids to look at problems and find creative solutions to these problems by making up little doohickeys and kind of learning to think outside the box. So I really like that. And I think that that kind of set me on a path of looking at things with kind of some skepticism and maybe it doesn't have to be the way it seems and kind of being open to looking at things in a creative way or maybe a little bit different than they're intended. So then you graduated with a degree in biology. Did you continue forward with grad school or did you take time to work first? I still kind of credit that seed planted by Bev Wilson in high school that drew me to know on day one of college, I definitely want to major in molecular biology and genetics. I wanted to be able to learn how to move genes around inside things. I thought that was so fascinating. And I still think it's so fascinating. So it's a huge blessing, I think, for a child to discover something that they find so compelling that they're sure that that's what they want to do. I mean, that's not what I actually do today, but I was sure that that's what I wanted to do. So I signed up to do that. Now, once you get to college, especially from a rural area, now there's 40,000 people around and that's very overwhelming. So I think it's important in college to find some small group. And for me, that was the undergraduate research program that they had at University of Maryland. And I was shy and timid and I didn't know how you find a spot to be known and unique in such a vast sea of people. And one of the girls on my floor just walked up to one of the biologists and said, hey, I want to work in your lab. And she started working in that lab. And I was like, what? That's what you do. So I, I guess I'll try it. I went to a professor that did molecular biology. He was Dr. Soichi Tanda, and he studied this crazy sounding thing, Drosophila eye morphogenesis, which... <laughs> what is that? <laughs> That's saying, let's mess around with some genes and see if we can create some goofy fruit fly eyeballs. And then from there, we'll drill down and see what kind of molecules and cells went together that created those things. So I just went up to him and kind of said, hey, can I work in your lab? <laughs> and he asked me a few questions and then said, absolutely. If you want to volunteer, you seem like you can pick it up enough. And that was transformative. So I got to actually do those things, putting genes in bacteria and growing them and seeing, harvesting proteins. And 
sitting there with chopsticks, cutting up fruit fly eyeballs all summer long, looking for mutations and trying to understand what they did. And that was doing science. And that was really, really cool as an undergraduate. So from there, what I liked about that was the mechanics of molecular biology. What I didn't like about it was that fruit fly eyes are boring. And you know what's exciting? Human disease. Now, wouldn't that be cool if you could figure out and cure a disease? That'd be so cool. Oh my gosh. So where do we go to, to learn about that? And it was challenging because at the time it was like, you either wanted to learn about genetics for the sake of knowing about genetics, or you wanted to be a physician. And it was hard to find where's the people that want to learn about how people work, not to be a doctor, but to cure disease. And I found that at the program that I went to. So that was at Johns Hopkins had a a predoctoral program in human genetics where it said this, like the line one was, this is the program for people who would like to be physician scientists, but don't want to be doctors. That's totally it. (laughs) like you wrote the subtitle yourself. What I liked about it is you actually went to the first two years of medical school to sort of learn your model organism as humans and what kind of things go wrong. So I went to that program and I found my next mentor who was Dr. Scott Kern. I think life is all about what mentors you have, who influences you at what point in your life. So Scott was an amazing mentor, a quirky guy, and he is a sort of best known for being a skeptic. He is skeptical of everything. And he would have a really refreshing, like non-traditional take on reading science. So I can remember some things that have stayed with me. Like he would be critical of some scientific finding by saying, oh, that's just spinner technology. Spinner technology. Yeah. When you just have like two spinners and you say, What is the effect of rat poison on estrogen production? That's really just kind of made up scientists where you're just kind of fishing for a connection with no evidence to kind of guide you there. So he was a fan of letting the system tell you where to look rather than you just guessing and throwing a dart at whether two things are related because you're going to see things that are related that really aren't related if you're just picking them out of a hat. That's what humans are good at doing. So he was a skeptic and he would do crazy projects. And one thing that he did that was like really profound somewhere along in grad school, he just said, so this stuff, this juice that we run the DNA through, that's called TAE. Why did we pick that? Why is the whole world just use this? Did anybody ever see if that's the best stuff? And the answer was, We don't know, which because what we do, it's just what you do, the way it is. That's like questioning. Why do we wear pajamas at night? I mean, isn't that kind of dumb? And when you think about it, you're like, we do it because that's That's the way it is. (laughs) We're civilized people. Civilized people run DNA gels and TAE and they wear pajamas. That's just the way it is. (laughs) And he would question things like that. So he actually did an experiment and came up with something that was like a million times better. And it turned out, that the real reason that we use that particular juice is because 25, 30, 40 years ago, that's what they happened to have laying around on the first day that somebody stuck DNA in a gel. 
And then just everybody used it after that. No one ever questioned it. So he was a really profound mentor that again, kind of taught to question things and to look at things in a different way. And by the way, my kids don't wear pajamas. I don't even think they own pajamas. It was just like, you're right, this is dumb. So we're not doing it anymore. Go ahead and wear your clothes. My girls wear jeans to bed. I mean, it's crazy because that's what they want to do. And why not? I cannot think of a compelling reason. So have at it. I love that. It reminds me of in Michelle Obama's book, she mentions her parents are like, oh, you have to have protein for breakfast. And yet it's mostly eggs or milk or whatnot. And her parents pushed back and said, if you feel like you want to eat something else for breakfast, you let us know. And she then researched enough protein. She's like, I'm going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the morning. If you want me to have protein and I don't like eggs, I will do that. And I just love that kind of creative, curious mind to think outside the box and just question the norm. Although I'll still wear pajamas, but I'll think about that often and maybe question maybe wearing jeans to bed. So then you graduate with a PhD from John Hopkins School of Medicine. What next? So after that, I had met my husband, so we were married right around at the end of grad school, and he was going to University of Maryland, Baltimore for medical school. So we had gotten married, which had been a kind of fun thing that's a little known fact that when we got married, we were on one of those wedding TV shows. And this is like before all that stuff was on Hulu. So you can't even find it, like it's not online. We were on an episode of Tying the Knot. And we had this like really fun wedding that was, of course, all DIY. It was the same kind of thing where I can remember standing at Walmart and seeing a knife that had a white bow hot glued on it that was $15 that you were supposed to buy to cut your wedding cake. And it was like, this is dumb. Why are we paying $15 for somebody to hot glue? This is ridiculous. We're not doing this. I took a cake decorating class. And I ended up making a wedding cake with my bridesmaids. And what we spent money on was renting this cool house with a hot tub in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland, where it was snowy. And we had all of the bridesmaids together. All the groomsmen had their own house. And we were doing things like making cakes and making these hilarious slide presentations and really making the wedding super fun. And we did that. So then we were married and I was stuck in Baltimore. So I spent a year working for a startup company as a, I don't even know what it was called, an analyst or something made up. I don't even know what that means. It was a company that said, you know, it'd be cool if in a research lab, you could just scan a sample of DNA and it would tell you like, this has been in all these other experiments and this is the patient and this is what was wrong with them. And yeah, that would be cool. So they were a life science software company. So they hired me to tell them like what lab people think about. And I ended up staying there and learning how to write use cases and software requirements and all sorts of crazy stuff that I'd never heard of before then. And it was super fun because at a small startup, you get to also be the QA person and the salesperson and every other job there. I got to meet with the investors and go eat steaks. And it was super fun and completely different than anything I'd ever done before. The traditional approach would be you're supposed to go do something called a postdoc. So everybody knows after you get a PhD, then you go do a postdoc, which means find another lab to go work in. And 
I knew that we were going to Rochester, New York, because my husband had matched a residency there. So we're definitely going to Rochester. And I just wasn't jazzed about any of the labs, like in the projects, I just wasn't super motivated about. So I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I really liked to teach. And I had met my husband teaching for the Princeton Review, super fun. So I was riding around Rochester on his interview. And I saw one of those signs with like a hat, like school. So I followed the sign. I'd never even heard. I mean, this is how dumb I am. I'd never even heard of Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT, which a lot of people have heard of because it's not some side of the road strip mall school. It's a university. So I roll up there and actually say to the guard, do you guys have a biology department? And they were like, yeah, uh, park in the S line. Okay, fine. So I randomly go just waltz into the biology department. Hi, I'm Jessa and I am moving here. I just got a PhD from Hopkins and I really like teaching. So do you guys have any jobs? And this is not how academia is done. (laughs) And surprisingly, they said, well, let's see if we do. And then they called me and then they hired me as a lecturer, which was like crazy. And it was super fun. So now I'm teaching 200 general biology students, which was a really, really fun job. And I absolutely loved it. And I was there for maybe like five years total. I started an undergraduate research program and I had a small lab that would really kind of teach kids to think like scientists and loved teaching and loved that job. And that was great until I learned kind of in that category of doing things the way you're not supposed to do them. If you get a job by rolling up to the university and saying, you guys go to biology department, then that means that I didn't do the postdoc and the traditional things that you're supposed to do. So I only found out later that that really put me at sort of a disadvantage on paper for how the university is required to hire people for full-time tenure track positions. So then when it was time to hire, like kind of make my position permanent, I didn't get the tenure track position that I assumed, of course I'll get that position. And I didn't. And that was like, what? (laughs) So there's a medium balance between being completely cavalier and disregarding everything. It doesn't always work out 100% in your favor being super spontaneous like that. So in that case, that was one of the big failures where I just had to look around and I'm like, well, I really don't know what to do now. So I chose to do the craziest thing I've ever done, which was to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to dare to do it. I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. Which, man, those people, that is the hardest job there is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I am nodding, and I'm, I haven't stopped nodding. <laughs> it's and so incredibly I didn't think I could do it, and I was kind of bad at it. But I wanted to do it. I really wanted to, but I didn't know if I dared to do it. So it was just one day when I rolled up to the daycare, and my kids were watching a video in daycare. Like, I'm paying them so that I can go to work. And I'm like, what'd you guys do today? Calculus? Like, what's, what do they got going on in there? We watch Thomas the Train. And I'm like, what? Because that's what you do on my watch. Like, we leave here 
and go watch Thomas the Train. That's the natural way. So if you already watch Thomas the Train, then am I on calculus? I'm not cool with that. So it was them watching Thomas the Train that one day that I was like, I'm doing it, cancel daycare and actually stay at home with my own kids. And that was probably the best decision I ever made. That experience with those young, young kids, like three and five years old, was incredible. I mean, it was really, really fun. And it was only fun because I was able to find a local community of other women choosing to do the same thing. And I found those women to be incredibly smart, incredibly compelling, and really a sisterhood of social support. And that's what made it wonderful. Otherwise, I would have probably been dead by now. <laughs> well, I know, I mean, especially now going on month, I don't know, six, seven, eighteen thousand month of kind of quarantine in this pandemic. I know a lot of people are questioning broader education and saying, what's the traditional path? And then also, what are some of the other options? And I think homeschooling had a type of kind of negative sentiment to it. And now people are realizing that the homeschool community is rich with so much thought and just deep discussions about how to foster this curious learning environment. So I know that our community is thinking about it a lot. But so going with that, so then you decided to be a stay-at-home mom. And at the time, you only had two kids. Is that right? That's right. So I had two kids. And I think I was still part-time doing some adjunct teaching. I joined the engineering department and was teaching like biology for engineers. So I was having a great time teaching. I had two young kids that now I was staying home with during my pregnancy, which was a surprise. You're having twins. <laughs> and thank goodness they were girls. Otherwise, also, I probably would be dead. But they were girls, so that worked out. And then I kind of lived in this blur where for years, I really deeply enjoyed being able to be a really profound and stable part of my kids' lives at that age. And I loved taking them to do like the walk in a creek. That's what we did. That was our job. And it was wonderful. It was awesome. But the other piece of that job, the larger piece of that job, is that you need to go grocery shopping and prepare healthy meals for every single person there. You need to do everyone's laundry. You need to clean up a constant stream of messes. You need to vacuum every day. I believe that every stay-at-home mom vacuums every day. And if they don't, they're wishing they had. It's a profound amount of organization, time management, and all these things that I am terrible at. That have always been terrible. Didn't just, oh, well, that missed me. I miss that. That job, that stay-at-home mom job, really focused on these things that I was terrible about. And in that community, you're just always feeling guilty because it's an overwhelming job. No one can really do all those things and still be a good mom and still do all those fun things. It's impossible. And I can remember like looking down at my wedding ring one day on my hand as I was cleaning a toilet and just thinking, this is not what I thought. <laughs> this is not where I thought I was going to be. I can remember another time where I was standing in the grocery store looking at the air freshener aisle. So you've got clean linen, you've got 
fresh spring rain. You've got apple cinnamon. And I'm sitting there thinking, apple cinnamon, is that? I probably stood there for 10 minutes and I was applying the analytical reasoning skills that I use today to bring back people's memories from their dead iPhone. It was the same brain going like, now, which one is the best? We'll go with vanilla. Nope, nope, that's going to make everybody think of cookies. No. And that was a sort of this another profound moment where I was like, I might be not cut out for this. <laughs> I, might I can't stop laughing because you literally summarized all my thoughts in the past seven months as I've been around my children more than I've ever have before and thinking the same thing of fresh linen or cinnamon or What'd orange citrus blossom. <laughs> These are really tough choices that I wish I never would have spent more than one second of mindshare on. But I love your perspective of parenting and just how overwhelming all of that is, whether stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, but just it's an overwhelming amount of work. But from that, for you, the path went to taking your toilet out of your house and smashing it up. Can you share that story and really how your second career came about? Yes. So there's been this sort of theme that there is in every life where those moments where life is really in the toilet turn out to be these pivot points that had that not happened, then you would have entirely missed out on another chapter that has so many wonderful blessings. So that happened, that moment where at RIT, I realized that my position was being discontinued and there was nothing I could do about it. What felt so awful, but one of the things that I think now is that every ending is a new beginning. You just don't know what's going to be next. So one day, it was another bad day, where I knew that the bathroom toilet was clogged because the kids were telling me it wouldn't flush. Okay. And then I realized at the end of that day that I couldn't find my relatively new iPhone. So it took me a little bit to kind of put two and two together that the missing iPhone and the mysteriously clogged toilet, hmm, is my iPhone in that toilet. So I tried to get it out. So I tried to plunge and the toilet seemed to be clogged by something like an iPhone because nothing else was going on. And I couldn't get it. I went to the hardware store and I bought something called a drill auger that you attach to a drill and you get to shove it in there. And I could hear something clanking around, but I couldn't get it out. And I was getting more and more frustrated because of just the life in general. There's so many frustrating things when you're a stay-at-home mom. Your life looks like, I know I need to go to the grocery store because we're out of cereal. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the kids to a play date and then give them social stuff. And then during nap time, I'm going to do the laundry. So I'm going to stop at the grocery store. And you go there and then the kid's screaming and crying and you end up going down these aisles and you skip this aisle so that they don't see something. And then you get them in checkout and then you get them in, buckled into the car seat and then the other kid buckled. And then you realize, God damn it, I forgot the cereal. <sighs> and then you drive home and then you're planning to do the laundry. Well, the dog has tossed the trash and shredded the diapers all over the house. So now during lap time, you get to clean that up. And then your husband comes home and he's going to be like, oh, great. You went grocery shopping. Did you get some cereal? <laughs> it's awful. So you're always just perpetually frustrated. So this toilet, I'm going to get that phone out. I'll tell you that right now. That toilet is not going to beat me. So I went to Google. How do you remove a toilet? 
oh, looks like it's really easy. You bail it out, you turn off the water, and then there are two screws holding your toilet in your house right now. So you can unscrew those, which is pretty easy to do, and then you can go like this, and you can pick it up, and you can march out your front door and set it right on your front yard in the grass, as one does. And then once you do that, then you're like, well, this is definitely a photo op. So come here, kids. Who wants to sit on the toilet under the apple tree? And we'll take some pictures. And then, all right, now give me a hammer. Fun times with mom. We're going to smash the toilet. And I was only like maybe 80% sure that my phone was even in there. So it was a, a little bit crazy. And I got a sledgehammer. And you know what? Toilets are super easy to break. They're way easier than you think. It was like, clink. And then, and there was my phone. And it was like, ha, I knew it. And I called my husband. You might need to stop at Home Depot on the way home because we're going to need a toilet for the downstairs bathroom. I got to go. And <laughs> so when you have a smashed toilet on the front yard, the neighbors come over and they're like, is everything okay? Yep. Found my phone. Nothing to see here. Move on. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so then that phone it kind of turned into this passion project where I looked up on ifixit.com and found a forum and a bunch of these cloud source, like user guides that everybody's writing and people are asking questions and other people are answering. It was awesome. And I ended up being able to take that phone apart and clean it all out and put it back together and it wouldn't turn on. But I ordered a new battery, plugged it in, and it did turn on. Oh, my God. It turned on and it worked. And I could make calls and I could see all my pictures. It was great. But it wouldn't charge the battery. So I looked it up. How do we solve that problem? And I ordered a charge port. And I figured how to take it all apart and put the charge port in. And it still wouldn't charge. Hmm. So I got another charge port and another battery. And it still wouldn't charge. And that's when I realized that the logic board, which is the heart and brain, the little computer circuit board inside your phone, that's why it wouldn't charge. Something on that city of little components was somehow not working. And that's kind of what sparked this new career. Is it possible to fix the logic board itself? It seemed like, why wouldn't it be? Because the whole thing works except for one thing. And it's just so, just, coincidence how this happened. If that phone had either never turned on again or had worked perfectly or any of that, then I never would have turned this whole chapter. So it's crazy. It is crazy <laughs> that it was part of being at home with four kids driving you nuts periodically and thinking about grocery store aisle fatigue with decision making that this would be your next career. What I think is fascinating is that I'm already exhausted hearing you being a stay-at-home mom and the idea of trying to tinker and play with and fix a what I would assume is just a broken phone. I think your patience and persistence to fix it is really amazing because I would just be like, all right, I'm going to the store and getting a new phone. Like I don't have the patience at all to do that. For the listeners who don't know, can you expand a bit more about soldering for those who don't know what that is? What I did with that phone, I, of course, made it way worse in trying to figure out how to fix it. But I just kind of went a little crazy, which I'm a huge fan of going a little bit crazy. So if you're going to be persistent, it was really incredibly selfish what I did. I said, 
you guys are going to watch Thomas the Train like for a couple days nonstop. That's all you're doing. Nobody's going to take out the trash or do any dishes and you can eat cereal off the floor. I don't care. I'm going to ignore you. While I selfishly pursue my own need to use my brain and try to figure something out. And that's, you kind of have to be selfish sometimes when you're a stay-at-home mom. You have to do something. You have to take care of yourself. And that's how I took care of myself was more than I needed to take a shower. I needed to use my brain. And that's what I did. So I ended up ordering a microscope and connecting with people. I truly believe that the internet can teach you anything. And I started just asking the internet questions and it led to getting a soldering iron. I didn't know any of this stuff, but I found some forum online and was able to ask them, okay, what do I need to measure? And they're like, put the red probe on seed, whatever, whatever. What's that? And first thing I had to do was solder a sewing needle to the end of the multimeter, like you would have from Lowe's in your garage that you never use. So go find that. Solder these tiny little needles so you can start making these tiny measurements on the iPhone circuit board. And I ended up kind of getting really passionate about this phone fixing thing and decided to see if I could buy broken phones or broken iPads and fix them just after the kids were in bed, kind of what you would do instead of watching TV at night, just something fun. And it was really fun at the time because if you found some like really crushed, broken iPad. Back then, no one even had a passcode on your iPad. So if you bought like 10 broken iPads that people had turned in thinking that's unfixable, because that's what we were led to believe. Oh, that's no way to fix that stuff. If you bought one and you took them all apart and you started putting them together so they were good, then they would turn on and you could swipe it and it would be a person's like diary on there life exactly that they had willingly sold you on ebay so i remember like one of the early ones that i fixed like that was who is this guy this guy's name is lance lance whoa lance lance was a legitimate porn star i've looked him up <laughs> and i could see well, what's it like being a porn star what's in the notes pad for a porn star and it would be ideas for videos and business things like maybe we should discount these clips they're just not bringing in enough so also here's a guacamole recipe for my mom also here's my christmas list and he's got all these things he's going to get mom and a drill electric drill for christmas a t-shirt and then there would be something like how to remove stains from pantyhose Okay. Yeah, so it was crazy. And you're like, oh my God, this is the most interesting, compelling like thing I've ever, like some kind of archaeologist thing where you're getting to see this person. And back then we didn't have bank information and things like that in these iPads. So it was really, really compelling, just interesting from a sociology perspective. I remember you told me the story before of ordering 10 broken iPads and then fixing them. And I remember you did tell me about Lance, which is the depth of Lance. <laughs> what a good professional he was, as well as son and uncle and brother and all that was really quite fascinating. But then you also mentioned you fixed an iPad that had a newborn baby photo album. So that one, I was fixing these with 
fix it and then just kind of curiosity who was this person and then delete restore and make it new and then sell on ebay so it was a hobby and i had one where i fixed it and it had been really like run over like really really crushed and when i turned it on it had nothing on it except for maybe like a dozen pictures and these were pictures of a new, new, newborn baby, like on the scale at the hospital. And the very first picture with mom and dad. And it was like, wow, these are pictures that all moms, it's very important to them. So I felt compelled to find out who this mom was and just make sure that she had these pictures. And I had no idea like what the story of where did this iPad even come from? I had bought it on eBay and in a lot of many other iPads that were like that. So I stalked her and then was like, do I send a message? And so I decided I'll do it. Hi, you don't know me. You're in Missouri and I'm a mom in New York and I have your iPad. And I fixed it and it's got pictures on here that I just want to make sure that you have. And she said, oh my God, I don't have those. And she was really overjoyed and told me that this was a new iPad that they had bought. They took it to the hospital. And then when they were taking the newborn home, they put the baby in the back of the car and put the iPad on the top of the car. Like you do when you're so excited to take the new baby home, you're not sure you're putting in the seat and you're all freaked out and they just forgot the iPad drove off and never saw it again. So it was really profound that experience of being able to give somebody back memories that are so important to them. And that sort of sparked this idea of seeking out people that needed dead devices to come back to life for the purpose of data recovery since the only way to get back your stored memories on a dead phone is to get it to turn on and enter the passcode to unlock it, and then you can get access to all of those things. So that's largely what I do all day, every day now. And I know that the first time I heard about you was from this article I read where you helped recover a phone from, unfortunately, someone who passed away from a hate crime. If you could share that story, because I thought it was just such a dark story and you were able to provide a little bit of light to the family that lost their loved one. With data recovery, one of the most meaningful cases are when you can get a phone to come back to life when the owner of the phone is deceased, because it's this last breath that they can give their loved ones. Now, it does depend on the family knowing the passcode. So I want to be clear about that because sometimes we get a lot of requests for, can you get into this phone? Not if you don't have the passcode. So that one, it had been a high profile case at the time where it was a phone that was in the pocket of a young man who was kind of a newlywed for a couple of years. And he was just shot, killed in cold blood for no reason other than the color of his skin. It was terrible. And so his wife had the phone and she found her way to sending it to us. And when we got the phone, it was filled with dried blood. And it was just sort of instantly so somber 
and it just made you want to burst into tears. So this was not just the memories of a person, this was the person. This was pieces of the person. So I cleaned it and cleaned it and cleaned it until it kind of got to the point where I could put it under the microscope and start trying to resuscitate this logic board. And I did it on a live stream on YouTube late, late at night. And it went on for like three hours. And it was every chip that I removed was caked in this thick, heavy stuff that made it just everywhere. And I thought that it was not going to be recoverable. And it was kind of three o'clock in the morning and I was fatigued and I was so sad about it. But then I kind of made this sort of connection where the phone was behaving differently between trying to turn it on with a power button versus trying to turn it on with USB, plugging it in. And it shouldn't behave differently. It should behave the same. So that was a clue. So it was sort of a late breaking clue that led me to trying one more thing and I was able to solve it and to get it to turn back on and live. And it was just this amazing, just incredible feeling for that thing to turn back on. And then we were able to get everything off of the phone and then call the wife. And it had been now like six, nine months, maybe even a year since her husband had died. And getting to call her, like we were crying. My whole team was crying. She was crying to be able to just have this thing that's so irreplaceable. This belonged to someone and it's them. It's their life. It's their something so personal. To be able to say, hey, this is on again. You can kind of like see and touch it and feel it and set it back. That was really profound. And we've had a number of cases that really affect you, which is part of what makes this job to this day extremely compelling. In preparing for this interview, I read a lot of articles about you and also just the videos and consumed the content. And what was so interesting that came across so clearly is this could be a very transactional type of job. You get sent an electronic, you fix it, you send it back. But all the stories relating to you recovering a lot of those logic boards and fixing them, it was more of returning to the owner or the family, something so much more than that. And it was this amazing emotional connection. So one article I read that you did an interview on, one of the last pictures they found, they actually have that framed. And that's like in their home, in their living room. They see that every day. And that brings tears to my eyes because that's so sweet. And that's, it really is what it's all about is having that ability to connect and you're giving that connection back to family. So it's so much more than just fixing a widget, which I absolutely loved. How much do you think being a woman in this micro-soldering world benefits you versus your male colleagues because of that emotional connection perspective? That's what I'm thinking while you're saying that, that I can remember there was that big uproar with, I think his name was James Damore, the Google employee who said, women in tech. And I personally thought that his article was spot on. It's offensive to be like, oh, women are generally in tech. But his point was, if we were to draw bell curves, sure, there's outliers, but in the middle part, women like people. Men in the middle part like sitting down and doing technology stuff. And I think that that is probably true And as a woman in tech. And if I were asked to take my job and delete the whole people element, and if this phone here that, with the baby picture that I just fixed was, here, refurbish this, it's one of a stack of a thousand, and they're all blank, 
that would be boring and I would quit and not do it because it would be too boring. So it is absolutely the fact that this is an intersection of technology and people. And that's why, I mean, my whole team are women plus Mark, who is a stay-at-home dad. So close enough. And we really find that a profound connection. So it's not that women are bad at science and technology. They're not. They just thrive when you can combine that with people. Not always, but the center part of that bell curve sure does. And I think that we should say, that's the way it is. And go with that. And just as we think about women and science jobs, let's create jobs where we put those two things together because that's where women are going to thrive and that's how they're going to really love it and want to do it all the time because the whole world revolves around who is the most passionate person in the room and passionate people are the ones that get things done. You want girls to be excited about science. People fight it and they will be. You have four kids and I love how your mind works and I love how you really challenge conventional wisdom and the norm and what's happened in the past. How does that apply to your parenting? Do you have them break things up and fix things? Your business certainly is in the business of fixing and recovery. How does that affect your parenting? I think that as a parent, I tend to do a whole lot of, I don't know, you tell me, a lot of figure it out. I give them the benefit of the doubt a lot of the time early on when they're very young about what they are able to do. And I noticed an example of this the other day where there was a bunch of girls that were challenged with put this tent together with no instructions. They're nine years old. Well, a nine-year-old girl is perfectly capable of figuring out how to put a tent together. As long as you kind of hint around about it. So you can just stand there looking at the tent and say something like, all right, so we got two big poles and two little ones. Which ones do you think, do you think these big ones go like side to side or crossways? And you just ask them the right questions, then they can look at the problem. If you break it down for them and say, well, I guess the big ones must go like this because they're not going to fit any other way. All right, well then let's see how they go. Now, what do you think this thing's for? You highlight the little sleeve it has to go through. Oh, we probably put it in there. Okay, let's do it. And you can take the style where you're kind of driving the bus a little bit, but as far as they're concerned, you're just asking questions that you appear to not really know the answer to either, even though you do, because you put a tent together before. But at the end of it, they put that tent together. All you do is ask questions. And at the end of it, they feel that they put that tent together by themselves. And that's what's important. So I try to have enough patience to do that. And in an ideal world, that's what I think parenting and homeschooling, that kind of stuff, that's what it would look like. It's just being smart enough to kind of think one step ahead and ask the right questions so that they can leap along feeling like they are completely driving the bus. I love that. So we talked a bit about mentors already in role models. You had mentioned the impact of Bev Wilson and also Scott Kern. So I won't ask the mentor question, but I'll go through the list of my other questions that I typically ask people. Who or what inspires you? I am inspired by anybody that is getting to enjoy something that they're passionate about. So I love to learn new things and I love to be around people that are passionate about that thing. And 
so many of us spend chunks of our lives doing things that we really don't enjoy. And it's inspiring to see a person who is getting to do something that they really do enjoy. And I love being able to learn from people like that. Love that answer. And would you say now that you love what you do and it marries all the things that you're passionate about? A hundred percent. Yes. I am so lucky to really every single day, like when we're done with this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this phone. (gasps) What? Is it, will I be able to fix it? What will it be like? What? Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I've been doing this for years and I've had lots of other jobs that I've loved. And I'm just, I feel so thankful that this job has remained that compelling, that it's still really fun to do every day. Love that. You have four wonderful children, a wonderful relationship with your husband and a really fantastic career. You have a YouTube channel that has over... 100,000 subscribers. What are you most proud of so far? I think going back to what inspires me, it would be someone that has the ability to do things like that and have a house that's not messy. (laughs) You're talking about a unicorn, Jessa. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because that's like who I admire. People that wear pajamas and vacuum their house and their kids wear socks that match things that that's not happening. What I'm proud of is definitely the accomplishments of my students and employees and my kids. So I think especially seeing one of my employees, my employees all come from the stay-at-home mom community. So the business began in the dining room and then now playdates turn into Playdates Plus, where now Christy is learning how to take apart a phone and Sunday is starting to do the customer service and we're starting to work together. And now when I see Christy at work come and tell me, like the other day there was an iPad that came in for data recovery and it was somehow in my queue when Christy does all the iPads. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, Christy, you better take this over. I don't think I'm qualified to do this. And she's like, you're fine. Okay. And I could guess what was wrong with it. But then I knew that when I connected the screen, it was just so hard. I can't do it. It's just so tiny that I was going to mess something up. And I did. I messed it up horribly. And then I said, Christy, I made it way worse than it was. (laughs) Here you go. And then she totally fixed it. And that makes me like, I'm really most proud of the fact that Christy could be like, here you go. I had to change the touch filter and the backlight. And now I had to get it in. And she made it work again. And that path for her, I'm not sure she would have done that as someone like, what would she be doing otherwise? I'm not sure. Hopefully not laundry and vacuuming and making her kids wear pajamas. (laughs) I love that. Last question. I ask all my guests to discuss struggles or failures that we haven't discussed already, but what has been your biggest or one of the biggest growth moments that you've had and lessons learned from it? I was thinking about that. And I think it's this theme of how devastating it was when my mother died. And then you kind of have to turn the corner and do something and have this other life. Same thing when I left RIT and same thing when I 
chose to stop being a stay-at-home mom when my kids started going to school and be, do this business. I think it's just, I keep thinking about things like, for example, a time when I had started doing repair at home and I bought two iPad minis that I intended to fix and to resell. And that was important to me. And I could already imagine that I would make enough money to be able to take my family out to dinner or something like that as a stay-at-home mom. That's really meaningful. And what happened instead is I ended up blowing the backlight on the first one. And now it didn't work anymore when it just needed a new screen before. But now I've damaged it. And then the second one, in troubleshooting the first one, I did the exact same thing. So now I have taken two repairable minis and turned them into two dead, unrepairable, at least at the time, minis. And I was so sad. I was just crushed by that. It was just, I couldn't believe that I had done something so preventable and stupid. And I now know it was because, oh, guess what? You got to disconnect the battery before you plug in the screen. Who knew? But what ended up happening is that I knew I wasn't going to be the only person in repair that would make that mistake. So I figured out how to fix that problem. And I ended up buying special equipment and fixing those two minis. And then that turned into this huge repair that I started offering to other shops. And it was really the ability to fix that problem that had felt so devastating, but it happened to all these other people and they realized that they could send it to me and I could fix it, that that's what started this mail-in repair business from other shops that turned into a incredibly rewarding profession. So when I look back on that moment when I couldn't believe I had, I'm hating myself for having destroyed these two iPads, that was probably the best thing that had happened to me in months, but I didn't know it. And so I kind of think that what I take away from that is all those times when you really feel low are, in hindsight, often the best things that could have happened to you because of what came later that you just can't see right now. I absolutely love that. I try now to when bad things happen, to just kind of see that and to have that experience to predict that this is bad today, but somehow this is probably going to be step one of something really cool that I'm going to really enjoy. Love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show and sharing all of your fantastic stories. Where can people find out more about Jessa Jones? You can go find us online at www ipadrehab.com. You can also find us on YouTube, iPad Rehab Micro Soldering YouTube channel, or you can just Google Jessa Jones and you'll probably find me. Love, love, love it. Thank you so much, Jessa. I had a great time listening to all of your stories and I hope other people enjoyed as well. All right. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.